Now I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. Matthew, chapter 17, is where I'd like to direct your attention. We're going to read a short passage. It's an unusual passage. Matthew is the only Gospel writer who recorded this event for us. My guess is that maybe it has to do with taxes, and that would be of particular interest to Matthew. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to pick up our pace a little bit in the Gospel of Matthew. My hope is to finish this Gospel before our current kindergartners themselves graduate from high school. So uh, we're going to return to our little bit of a speedier pace uh, next week. But uh, for today, we're going to just this little scene uh, that is explosive in its implications in uh, Matthew chapter 17, verse 22, verses 22 to 27. So you follow along as I read. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. The disciples were filled with grief. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? Well, from others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Scott McKelpin is a pastor. He lives in Perth, Australia. He is also an author. He recently wrote a book called Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World That Says You Shouldn't. Being the Bad Guys. Uh, He's trying to instruct us, those of us who follow Jesus, in uh, living, responding to the ways in which popular opinion about Christians has changed. It used to be that we were viewed merely as prudes, um, sometimes self-righteous, sometimes holier than thou, but mostly harmless do-gooders. Nowadays, though, because of our intolerance, we're a dangerous threat. Uh, we should admit, we should admit that there are a lot of hucksters who claim to be followers of Jesus. Hucksters who have in, in Jesus' name done a lot of damage and harm to people and perhaps are changing reputation. We deserve some of it, but not all of it. We used to be the good guys. Now we're the bad guys. You might feel that especially during the month of June because June is pride month. This is the month in which we are to celebrate love in all its forms and affirm people in all of their identities. Tim Keller says that our Christian forebearers, the followers of Jesus in the first couple hundred years after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, they faced cultural pressure because they would not affirm all deities. In the face of the worship of gods of all kinds, those stubborn Christians in the first few hundred years kept insisting that Jesus is Lord. He said, in contrast to that, we, these these days, we are the bad guys because we will not affirm all identities. 
We're not pluralists. We're not pluralists either with God, and we're not pluralists with sex or gender either. That may be the chief reason that we're the bad guys these days. And this is a passage of Scripture that helps us. It's meant to instruct us on what motivates us to move nimbly, flexibly, freely, to move and to serve our neighbors even when they see us as the bad guys. We need this counsel. We need this counsel not just because of our contemporary situation, but because of what Jesus told us to do. Jesus said, and a Roman soldier could have demanded this, that if someone makes you carry his possessions one mile, you should instead carry them two miles. Jesus said that if someone sues you for your shirt, you should give them your coat also. Do you have the generosity of of spirit? Do you you have the uh, love to be that generous with your time and your possessions? Was Was Jesus really serious about that? We may not be able to come on the same terms that our neighbors would have us to come, but we do come because of what Jesus commanded to serve and to serve freely. And the focus of this passage, these verses that I read, is on why that's true. And there's two themes in this passage that I want us to think about in, in these verses. We're going to talk about the, the, the theme of freedom and then love. Why are we the good guys, even though the world might perceive us to be the bad guys? Because we enter the world with the freedom and the love to serve generously. Uh, let's, let's think about freedom first, and I want to think about two aspects of it. First, we're going to talk about the freedom of Jesus. Our freedom to enter the world uh, generously is tied to the freedom of Jesus. And Matthew here is going to explain Jesus' freedom, and he's going to make a significant claim about the identity of Jesus. Now, the issue at hand in this passage, in verse 24, is over the temple tax. Every year, uh, Israelite men had to pay a temple tax, a two drachma tax, uh, between, uh, all the men who between the ages of 20 and 50. It was an annual tax collected, and the money would go to support the temple in Jerusalem, uh, building projects, building repair, uh, supplies, meeting some of the needs of the priests. All that money went to Jerusalem to take care of the temple. And it was required, and it was a sign of your... One of the great signs of your devotion as a Jew, I am a Jew and I support the temple. One of the pillars of the faith is contributing to this tax. Now, in Jesus' day, the tax was, this particular tax collected this way, or the collection this way was relatively new, but the tax itself is embedded in the uh, Old Testament in the book of Exodus 30. Look what it says, just so we can pick up some context here of what this tax is. Exodus 30, verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Uh, My suspicion about this is, uh, especially when when David is counting uh, uh, counting the Israelites, that a census is something that can inflate your pride and inflate your sense of self-righteousness, self-reliance. Look how many people we have. And, and God says, when you do the counting, collect this tax, this payment. It's an offering to the Lord as a reminder that huh, you're not all that hot stuff that you think you are. So I think that's maybe some of the thinking. 
Verse 13 says, each one who crosses over to those already counted, there's the uncounted people on this side and the counted people over here, and when you cross over and we count one, two, um, each one, when they cross over, they're to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over, those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make the offering of the Lord to atone for your lives. It's interesting. These people have just been slaves. They, have, they were slaves not that long ago, and already God is concerned that in their minds, the differences and the amount of wealth that they have will begin to make them think that they matter differently to God. And no, 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 no. The rich shouldn't pay more, and the poor can't pay less. Verse 16, receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Use it for the tabernacle, which is eventually the temple. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for your lives. This is the tax that's at question. And, and Jesus and the disciples, verse 24 tells us, are going to Capernaum. And as they enter town, outside of town would be a tax collector's booth. And one of those tax collectors responsible for collecting the two drachma tax went up to Peter, who I think he must believe Peter is the CFO of Jesus' ministry. He goes up to Peter and he says... Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Uh, one thing I forgot to tell you about the temple tax. Uh, the temple tax is uh, priests and rabbis were exempt from paying the temple tax. And, and this tax collector is like, your teacher doesn't claim the rabbi exemption, does he? Jesus is, is a rabbi, but not in the traditional sense. He He's not trying to get out of paying his taxes, is he? And Peter, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Peter says, yes, he does. Immediately, Peter has no idea. I, I, I promise you, Peter has no idea if Jesus pays his tax or not. But, you know, somebody's giving shade to Jesus and Peter's there, right? No, yeah, yeah, he pays his taxes. <laughs> and then he goes to talk to Jesus. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. That's important. We'll come back to that in a minute, that Jesus speaks first. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes, from their own children or from others? Well, um, from, from others. The children are exempt. I wonder if Peter knows what Jesus is trying to communicate with this image. I don't think so. Jesus is saying to Peter, I don't pay the tax. I don't need to pay the tax, not because of the rabbi exemption. I don't need to pay the, the temple tax because of the family exemption. I, I am God's son, and I don't need to pay the temple tax because the temple is my family business. Now, we're used to thinking about this. We're used to thinking about Jesus being God the Son. We confess it. We believe it. It's central, uh, central tenet of our faith. But the disciples are still thinking about this. They're still working this out, the implications of what it means. Again, to put it in their terms, the temple is Jesus' family business. When my nephew, who now this year is graduated from high school, when he was uh, three or four years old, maybe in first or second grade, I'm not sure, he was visiting one time and he went down to Sunday school and proudly announced to all of the classmates that his Uncle Joel owns the church. <laughs> <laughs> 
Sunday school teachers had to graciously tell him that that was not indeed the truth, that, uh, that Uncle Joel does not own uh, the church. Uh, uh, but but uh, Jesus is, is saying something like that. The temple, the meeting place with God, the place where you go to offer sacrifices, the place of worship, the holiest place in all of Israel, Jesus is saying, yeah, that's mine. I'm, I'm a member of that family. And follow the implications. If your dad owns an ice cream shop, do you know what you don't have to pay for? Ice cream. If your grandpa owns an ice cream shop, do you know what that means? It means you get all the ice cream you want and you don't have to pay for it. If your dad owns a butcher shop, you don't have to pay for bacon. If your dad, if your father is the God of the temple, you need not pay the temple tax. I'm not sure if Peter understood the implications of this. But it actually shouldn't surprise us that Jesus would talk this way. He had already said, had he not, in Matthew chapter 12, someone greater than the temple is here. Someone greater than the temple is here. It's me, I'm greater than the temple. And it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus would talk this way, that he would be able to talk this way, because he knows what people want to talk about before they do. Matthew would emphasize this. Jesus spoke first. He knew what was on Peter's mind. Some, why? Because he's God in the flesh. And he does this very strange miracle. It's so odd. So unlike any other miracle that Jesus does, it, this is a miracle that is most like a magic trick of all of the miracles that Jesus did. It's almost, Jesus, it's almost like he's like, Peter, what's this behind your ear? And he pulls out, you know, he does, this is like, except he doesn't pull it behind Peter's ear. He puts it in a fish's mouth. So odd. There are some people who try to uh, diminish, well, it seems like they're trying to diminish. Maybe they're just trying to explain more what's going on here. And they say things like, there's a species of catfish in the Sea of Galilee. And you know catfish, they live on the bottom and they eat almost anything. And, and you know, some guy was uh, tying a fishing line and his pocket's emptied. He dropped a coin in the, in the water and catfish, you know, they'll eat anything, see that shiny object and swallowed it. And you know, it happens every now and then, it's very rare, but every now and then people find things in fish's throats and, and that's just what happened. Well, okay, but how... How was Jesus able to say to Peter, the first fish you catch, go out right now, and the first fish you catch will have enough money in it to pay your taxes and mine? <laughs> it seems impossible. It's not impossible if it's announced by the one who claims this close connection with the temple. This is an astounding claim. Jesus is free of the temple tax because he's God's son. And it's a freedom that he shares with us. Let's talk about that aspect of freedom here next. We're going to talk about our freedom in Jesus. The word children that uh, Jesus uses here, the original actually would be more uh, gender specific. It would say sons. The word sons, children, can be a very narrow word or it can be a very broad word. It can refer to your direct descendants, your children, or it can refer to your associates, your company, your friends. The next best thing to having a dad who owns an ice cream shop is having a friend whose dad owns an ice cream shop. And Jesus includes Peter in this. You're with me, Peter. If you're, if you're one of my associates, you're with me in this exemption. You can see that because Jesus pays Peter's taxes. 
He includes Peter in this. How cruel would it have been for Jesus to say, go fishing, catch some money, and pay my taxes, and you're on your own for the rest of it. No, no, no. You're with me, Peter. I'm, I'm taking care. We're doing this together. Our right to exemption is rooted in the announcement that Jesus makes in verses 22 and 23 when he says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. This is the second time that Jesus has made this announcement. You should pay attention to these things when you're reading the Gospels because these announcements kind of punctuate the Gospels. They're very important in the structure of the Gospel of Mark, and here they are in Matthew 2. Remember, the first one follows in Matthew 16 where Jesus said to the disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that is exactly right. Let me tell you what it means that I am the Messiah. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. This is the second time Jesus has said, some, said something like that to his disciples. They don't like the idea. They're grieved, the text says. But they're, they're starting to get it, at least. At, at least... They're not objecting so much. Now, there's some peculiarities in this we we should think about. Um, The text says, verse 22, they came together in Galilee. Dale Bruner says that he thinks that this coming together, this associating is a clue that Matthew is changing topics or changing directions a little bit. Think about where we've been the last few weeks. Matthew 16, Jesus announces the beginning of the church. I will build my church. My, I am gathering from uh, the world a new collection of people. They'll be my people. It's going to be called the church. He describes that in Matthew 16. In Matthew 18, though, he delivers a lecture, a sermon, about how the people in his church are supposed to relate to one another. We're going to start thinking about that next week, Lord willing. And, and oh, Jesus has bad news for us. Relating to one another as a church in a community is not going to be easy. It's going to involve suffering. It's going to involve setting aside your interests. It's going to involve um, sacrificing to love other people. It's going to involve accountability to one another. It's going to involve a lot of forgiveness. It's going to involve a high calling when it comes to marriage and divorce. It's not going to be easy. These are Jesus people. We are ornery people. And, and, and loving your fellow members of the body of Christ is going to be difficult. It's going to involve suffering. And, and Jesus seems to start this suffering call by reminding us that he suffered first. He suffered first for the sake of the church. And, and following him and encouraging Jesus' people sometimes involves suffering too. He went first, though. He went first. Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered. That, that phrase, to be delivered, he's going to be delivered, is very important. Your translation might say handed over. Your translation might say betrayed. I don't think betrayed is the right idea. He's speaking about something that God is going to do. The Father is going to. He is going to deliver the Son of Man 
into the hands of men. This word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, to describe God's relationship with his rebellious people. How does God discipline his rebellious people? When the Israelites rebel against God, what does he do? He hands them over to their enemies for their discipline so that they will learn there are consequences to rebelling against God. And this is a word that's used all the time in the book of Judges. Let me show you. Judges 2.14. In his anger against, the, against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them, there it is, he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around them, whom they were no longer able to resist. He gave them over. Judges 3.8. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them, there it is again, he handed them over, delivered them into the hands of, here's a good name, if you're thinking of baby names, Cushan Rishathayim. Uh, actually, this is not the name that his mother gave him. Uh, it means dark, doubly wicked. Cushan Rishathayim is one bad dude. And, and God handed his people over to them. Cushan uh, Rishathayim, the king of Aram Naharayim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. Or Psalm 106, 41. God gave them into the hands, he gave them into the hands of the nations and their foes ruled over them. And Jesus says that God is going to do that to his son. He's going to hand his son over to these men. And you ask yourself, how can that possibly be? How can it possibly be that God the Father would hand God the Son over to these men who are going to kill him? Jesus uses the phrase son of man. Remember, this is his, his very subtle plug into Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel the prophet sees a heavenly vision and he sees a, divine, a, 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 a heavenly figure who is man-shaped and he calls him, I saw one like the son of man. And the son of man in Daniel's vision in chapter 7 appears before God the Father and God the Father gives him glory and honor and authority. And in Matthew 17, God the Father gives the son of man over to the wolves. How can that be? How can it be that he would hand his son over to these men knowing what they would do to him? We know why it happened. It happened for our sake. Because we were the one who deserves, we were the ones who deserved to be handed over to the wolves. But God, in his great love for us, has given his son over, gave his son over to these men who killed him. And on the cross when he died, he bore God's wrath for our sin, paying the penalty that we owed because of our rebellion against God so that all who believe in him will have life in his name and receive forgiveness through what Christ has done for us. How can it be that the Son of Man would be handed over to men who will kill him? It's a part of God's plan, his wise, just, loving plan to rescue sinners. And because of what Jesus describes, because of what Jesus has done, there is freedom for us, freedom from the penalty of our sin, freedom from God's wrath to all who believe. 
our freedom in Jesus. Now, our freedom in Jesus in this passage works out in a few significant ways. I just want to point out a couple of them to you. First of all, this passage reminds us about our freedom from the temple, our freedom from the temple. This is the most explicit in the, connect, in the text. The temple sacrifices because Jesus has died are over. We don't owe anything to the temple because Jesus is the meeting place between God and man, and Jesus is the one who offered sin, uh, the sacrifice for all sin. So temple, it's over. We're, we're free from the temple. But secondly here, we're free to serve. We have the freedom to serve. Jesus is going to instruct Peter in how he's supposed to think about the best interests of those tax collectors. Um, so Jesus here is asserting, I do not owe the temple tax, but we're going to pay it anyway, and I'm going to tell you why. Jesus is instructing Peter about how he's going to serve. Our freedom in Jesus actually frees us to serve others. Follow me here for just a minute. When what Jesus has done sinks down into your mind and heart and settles there, it changes you and it changes how you view other people too. Before, you might have served other people out of need because you needed something from them. Now you serve them out of freedom. Let me explain. I may have talked about this a little bit ago, but uh, in the last couple of years, two years ago or so, I uh, learned a lot about the Roosevelt family. I watched the Ken Burns documentary about the Roosevelts, and there was a scene about Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor Roosevelt, probably our most accomplished first lady in the United States. Don't tell Hillary Clinton I said that. But Eleanor Roosevelt grew up in a, a dysfunctional home. Her father was an alcoholic, and her mother was uh, a narcissist. She's a beautiful woman. She was an accomplished woman. She, she was gracious and uh, uh, well-known in society. She wanted a high society sort of life, but she married an alcoholic, and she was disappointed, and she was most disappointed in the daughter that they produced uh, uh, this girl named Eleanor, who was not nearly as beautiful as her mother. In fact, her mother said of Eleanor that she was, uh, she looked like a wizened old granny. So she called her granny. That was Eleanor's nickname in her home, granny, because she was so unattractive. Well, uh, Eleanor realized uh, that there was a moment she found in her life that there was happiness for her. There was uh, affirmation from her mother to be found, and it would be found when Eleanor did things for her mother. So when her mother had her migraine headaches, uh, they darkened the room, and Eleanor would go in very quietly and take a, a cloth that had been dipped in cool water. She'd wring out the cloth, and she'd put it on her mother's uh, eyes and on her forehead to soothe the pain of her migraine. And that was about the only time that her mother said anything kind to her, affirmed her, thanked her for what she was doing. And Eleanor Roosevelt, based on that experience in her home, learned that if you want people to love you, you have to do nice things for them. If you want people to love you, you have to serve them. There is no love without service. Love has to be earned. It's a sad story. I hope that this very accomplished woman did not spend her life traveling around the world trying to help people in an effort to find someone who would love her, who would accept her, who would affirm her. 
See, we followers of Jesus, we don't go into the world to serve other people out of need. We are not looking for love because we know of the depth of the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. And we don't serve other people looking for their affirmation or looking for their attention or looking for their applause because of the riches of the grace that we have found in the Lord Jesus. If you serve other people uh, because your pitcher is empty and you want them to fill it, you will never be content and you will make compromises all over the place trying to satisfy this hunger for affirmation and love and affection. But when the gospel, when what God has done for us in Christ Jesus sinks deep down into your heart, it frees you to serve people of the overflow of what God has done for you in Christ. Has the good news about Jesus sunk that deeply into your mind, into your heart, so that you free, serve them freely? So there's the freedom of service. And then, then third in this passage, we could talk about the freedom of flexibility. The freedom of flexibility. Jesus doesn't have to pay the tax, but he does. Why does he pay the tax? For the sake of those tax collectors. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. Followers of Jesus, we have the freedom to be flexible in thinking about the needs and responses of people around us, and we don't go out of our way to provoke people. In fact, we go out of our way to serve others. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes fidelity to the Lord Jesus means you cannot be flexible. Jesus himself in Matthew 15 did not flex on the Sabbath rules of the, of the Pharisees, and um, he provoked them. But as often as you can, as a follower of Jesus, don't provoke those who are not followers of Jesus or those you are trying to serve, especially, hear this passage, when it comes to money. Um, here's one way that this passage might apply. This will require some careful thought, I think, in a few years, but, but here's something for you to think about. I expect sometime in the next five or six years, maybe sooner than that, there'll be serious challenges to our tax-exempt status as an organization, as a nonprofit organization, as a church. And there may be significant challenge to your ability to take deductions for your charitable contributions to our congregation. And we're Americans. We're Americans, right? So the challenges will come. And you know what we Americans do when someone challenges us? We sue. So we're going to sue. There's going to be a lawsuit. And here's, I think, how the lawsuit will go. The people arguing against tax exemptions will stand up and say, we the people, the government, we the people represented by our government, we give tax breaks to nonprofit organizations because we believe that nonprofit organizations are of benefit to society. And if they're of benefit to society, we're willing to give them tax breaks so that they can benefit society. But, but, those hateful, intolerant churches... Don't bring benefit to society by their exclusive beliefs. And therefore, we should not subsidize hate and we should withdraw their tax-exempt status. Can, can you hear that argument going on, maybe? Now, if, if I were in court, I mentioned this in Sunday school a few weeks ago, if I were in court, I might like to stand up and say, yes, we understand your argument about benefits to society, but the truth of the matter is, the reason that we are tax-exempt is because when our members give money, they give it to God, and no government has the right to tax God. We could make that argument too. But, but, I wonder 
I wonder what this passage might tell us to do in that circumstance. I wonder if this passage might tell us to, well, we believe this. We believe that as citizens, it's our responsibility. Jesus taught us to do this, to pay our taxes, to contribute to the common good, to provide for uh, uh, our own nation. Uh, we pay our taxes by faith. I was going to say gladly, but I, by faith was as far as I could get. We pay our taxes by faith and in obedience to the Lord Jesus. Is it possible that maybe when that challenge comes, this passage would instruct us to say, for the sake of the, the love of our neighbors and to uphold our reputation as good neighbors, we'll pay? Because of the freedom we have in Jesus, we don't have to assert our rights. We don't have to worry about our resources. We have the freedom of flexibility. Well, you can think about that. Let's talk about what else is motivating here, Jesus. We have the, the uh, motivating uh, us in this passage. Jesus is teaching us. We have freedom. Secondly, though, I want to talk just briefly about love and think about why Jesus pays. Why does Jesus pay the tax? Verse 27 uh, so that we may not cause offense, so that we may not be, your translation might say, a stumbling block. That word translated offense or stumbling block here refers to something that gets in the way of someone believing, something that trips them up, that keeps them from believing in Jesus. And, and Jesus says to Peter, we don't want to put anything in their way. We don't want these tax collectors to think that I'm trying to cheat the system or that I don't understand what the temple is for and they don't understand sacrifice. We don't want them to dismiss me over, over two drachma. We don't want them to dis dismiss me over this issue. You should just go and pay the tax. Peter, Jesus is thinking about the faith of these tax collectors, and he wants to protect them, uh, keep them from having a silly excuse to reject him. For the sake of love, for the sake of their faith, he's going to pay the tax. Uh, Paul wrestled with this, didn't he? In 1 Corinthians 9, look at 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. Paul wrestled with these, some of these same issues, this flexibility. It's a passage that causes a lot of consternation. And you can see Paul kind of working his way through it. Though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. What really matters to Paul, I'm not going to be offensive. I'm not going to put a stumbling block out. To the Jews... I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one as not having the law, parenthesis, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some for their faith, for their faith. I flex, I flex. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Sounds very much like what Jesus has done, doesn't it? Does, do you have freedom in Jesus that enables you to give generously, to go two miles instead of just one? To give your coat and not just your shirt? Paul says he did this for the sake of the faith of those he's trying to serve. Reminds me very much like Jesus, who was in very nature God, 
but did not consider the rights he had as God the Son, something that he had to cling to, that he hold on, held on to. Instead, he made himself nothing and took to himself the form of a servant. And being found in appearance he, as, as a human being, he, he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Because of that, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And someday, at his name, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord, and it will be to the glory of the Father. This is the Jesus we consider, the Jesus that we worship, the Jesus in this passage whose mindset we take upon ourselves even if in the world we're considered the bad guys. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and we do so gladly through the Lord Jesus, thinking about this very odd miracle. It's uh, delightful. It's amazing. It's something that is easy for God the Son to do. Father, we come before you because uh, we have been well-discipled in this world that our rights are something that we must demand. And we're not used to the discipleship of this sacrifice and this service. So fill us, Father, with the certainty of, of the knowledge of what Christ has done for us that we serve flexibly, gladly, and generously. And fill us with love for our neighbors, that we would go to them um, for Christ's sake and for their confidence, their belief in the rescue that you have provided for us in Jesus. Help us, help us, we pray to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.